Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the true crime show that each time around seeks to recount for you some of the more macabre, often unfamiliar and bizarre tales that I look for in the dark nooks and crannies of the UK and Ireland. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and it isn't a show at all without you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts who tune in to make this a reality each time around. It's fabulous as it always is having you joining me here today, which I thank you kindly for doing so, and I do hope that as the episode finds you, then it finds you with yourselves and everybody dear to you, all good, all safe and all well. So we're nearly at the conclusion of the thriller arc with the penultimate episode, I bet you're pleased to hear. I did tell you there was quite a bit to this one however, didn't I? Perhaps I personally didn't realise just quite how much, granted, but there you go. When you get the opportunity to cover such incredible and powerful tales as this one, why would you skimp on it? You do it properly, don't you? And we should be cracking on with the penultimate part of it shortly. Firstly though, thanks so much as ever for your feedback to date concerning the arc. It has been some work to do, I promise you, and reading your very kind reviews and feedback about it, well it can be a right spur sometimes when it feels like writing an episode of it is like climbing bloody K2. So it's ace of you that is, thank you so much all. Cheers also to both my returning and new Patreon supporters this time around, with shout outs going out here to Victoria Elias, Ben, Jackie Scott, Oakthorne, Lewis Moir, Laurie Jones and Miranda Morton, plus Penny Foster, Kimberly Alderton, Richard Hogan, Jill Scott, David O'Loughlin and Leslie Boakman who have opted to annually support the show. A massive apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you so much, it's so incredibly kind of you and it's very much appreciated folks, it really is. Now if you want to join these guys and support the show yourselves, perhaps you want a bit of show swag from me, or you're just after the full series of unreleased bonus episodes that there's available to hear as a supporter, I'm talking crazy tales such as Disfigured, New Year's Evil, Obsession by the Sea, or Suffer the Little Children, and that's just a couple of them, with another being added each month then it's very simple and very reasonable to do too. It's just the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon. It's got the exact same show logo and everything. Or there's a clickable link in the episode show notes now and each time around. And boom, quick as a flash, you can be in and you can be hopefully enjoying. I'd also like to say whilst I'm here that I'm thrilled to say that you can now pre-order my first book from the show, Case Files from the True Crime Enthusiast which will be out on the 1st of December, so it's just in nice time for a little stocking filler for Christmas for someone. I am incredibly excited for this, I can't tell you how much, and it's really all down to you guys that it's even happening, because there isn't a show without you, so there could never be a book either. There's a link to it on Crime Publishing Network that will be in this episode's show notes and each one going forward, or you can find the details for it through the show's social media links, or if you get in touch with me, I'll let you know where to get it from. So, back to work mode then. Now I'm not recapping here really, because if you start something at part 8 of anything, you'll listen to whatever anyway, won't you? But we left Thriller last time around, with Taller and Shorter now both named, and facing each other for only the second time in 13 years in courtroom number one of the Old Bailey. Taller, 
we can now call him David John Mulcahy. Now, I was contacted by someone who said that I was pronouncing his surname wrong. Apparently, it's Mulcahy, but I've heard it pronounced on through researching Mulcahy, Mulcahy. So I'm going to go with Mulcahy, how it reads more comfortable to myself. If it's right, it's right. If it's wrong, I, I don't know. So taller, we can now call him David John Mulcahy, finally stood in the dock after thinking that he'd gotten away with his crimes for the past 13 years. And shorter, who we've come to know as John Francis Duffy, also in court, but this time in the witness box. The unspoken bond between each of them that made them two bodies with one brain, as they were once described, was now shattered with Duffy having spent two weeks recounting to the court the horrific catalogue of crimes that the pair had gotten up to. The countless rapes, the genesis and methodology behind them, and the disturbing details of three murders that he now told publicly, for the first time, the events behind in full. For each of the 15 charges he faced, David Mulcahy pleaded not guilty, claiming Duffy to be a pathological liar but police and medical professionals were convinced that he wasn't, that he'd finally arrived at a point in himself where he wanted to open up, and would be the crucial witness to put the man they knew to be a multiple rapist and suspected triple murderer off the streets that he'd roamed free on for the past 13 years. So would Duffy be enough to do so? How did the bond between the pair come to be so strong, and was it now really that shattered? Let's find out, shall we? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, also with references to animal cruelty contained. So please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for the penultimate part of the thriller arc, part 8, an episode that I've entitled, When Monsters Meet. So, we've heard of the powerful evidence that was given for, during the case for the Crown, the testimony of each of the victims from the rapes and attempted rapes Mulcahy was charged with from the 1980s, in all but one case being given bravely in person in court. The Crown also produced countless exhibits of evidence to the court, from the weapons that were discovered and seized during a search of Mulcahy's home and vehicles, through to items of point such as photographs of him from the 1980s that showed his appearance as a match to the rapist's descriptions given, items of clothing that matched this, and innocuous yet suggestible items that had been seized during the search, such as boxes of swan vesta matches, even though Mulcahy was a non-smoker. The jury had also heard testimony from several police officers and forensic experts, plus from independent witnesses, such as a woman named Shirley Lynham, who had befriended Mulcahy back in the 1980s through a mutual shared love of soul music, and who told the court of a camping trip that she'd attended and that Mulcahy had been part of. She described to the court how whilst walking along the beach at Bognor Regis during this trip, in conversation with Mulcahy, he had allegedly told her, I quote, I've done something which could put me away, for a long time. Although what this something was was never elaborated upon, as the moment was lost when friends of theirs caught up with them. 
Was it possibly a veiled reference to the exploits that the star witness for the Crown, John Francis Duffy, had spent two weeks in the witness box telling the court chapter and verse about, just feet away from his former best friend in the dock, whom he now couldn't even look at? He simply gestured towards with his right arm whenever a point was raised that he needed to clarify. It's food for thought, eh? So, how does such an unspeakable, unimaginable bond that is so strong that it leads to rape and murder, and remains intact for almost a decade afterwards, break down so? To look at that, you need to go back more than 50 years and look to see exactly how it was formed. John Francis Duffy was born on the 29th of November 1958 in Dundalk in Northern Ireland, the second of bricklayer John and his wife Philomena Duffy's three children, in between his older sister Susan and his younger brother Jimmy. The young John was born into a respectable family, his parents being devout Roman Catholics, who even named him after the recently elected Pope John XXIII and ensured that he was a regular attender to the local Catholic church from an early age, becoming an altar boy whilst doing so. He had an uneventful upbringing for the first six years of his life, a quiet yet polite and helpful boy, before in 1965 the Duffy family moved over to Kilburn in North London for John Senior to seek work, settling in the Dumouriouf House Flats on Lawn Road, and where the young John went on to attend St. Dominic's Roman Catholic School before moving from the age of 11 to Haverstock Hill Comprehensive Secondary School in nearby Chalk Farm. Now this place has several notable alumni, as former pupils here include former X-Factor judge, Talisa, whatever her bloody surname is, and the rest of N-Dubs as well. Recognise! Politicians the Miliband brothers went there, England footy legend, LucasAide guzzling terrible football rapper John Barnes, and the world's quickest recovering addict, Phil Mitchell himself, actor Steve McFadden, were all to attend here. Whilst he was a pupil, Duffy was described again as being a polite but shy and quiet child who enjoyed swimming and judo and who expressed interests in both the scouts and the army cadets yet he was more remembered for other reasons. A former student here at the same time as Duffy, Richard Priestley, described Duffy as a loner, keeping himself to himself, and who was bullied mercilessly by other bigger boys. Due to his small size, for he was never to grow taller than five foot four, his curly ginger hair and his acne-floored skin, Duffy became the archetypal bullied schoolboy who refrained from standing up to bullies and interacting socially, and even took to walking around in a duffel jacket with a hood up, regardless of the temperature, in an attempt to hide himself from the world around him. Another former classmate described him as, I quote, a wimp, but a decent enough sort of wimp, or so we thought. But yet another was a bit harsher, however, and recalled, he was useless with girls, useless at lessons, and totally uninterested in things like sport and music. No one liked him, he was short and spotty-faced, the sort no one could get on with, and he was always rubbing people up the wrong way. But he was not alone here, for by chance, Duffy met and instantly became close friends, 
almost like brothers, he was many years later to describe their relationship to a court. With the person who was to become his twisted soulmate, David John Mulcahy, on the mutual first day at Haverstock School as a pair of 11-year-olds that September in 1970. And indeed, they fast became inseparable. Mulcahy would years later tell police that his friend Duffy became, I quote, almost part of the family. Little is available to research concerning David Mulcahy's early life, except that he was the son of a builder turned publican who also hailed from originally from Northern Ireland and who, aside from having a house in Wimbledon, ran a succession of London pubs. Firstly, the Washington on England's Lane in Hampstead, then the Prince of Tech in Earl's Court. So both boys had met on their first day in the same class and soon became best friends. And it does happen that, doesn't it? Indeed, my own lifelong best mate still to this day is somebody that I met on my first day at secondary school more than 30 years ago now. Both young John and David identified with each other. They both came from working class Irish backgrounds, but they mainly identified because both were badly bullied at school. Duffy, as we've said, for his acne and his curly ginger hair, and Mulcahy for his unusually prominent forehead that earned him the nickname Slaphead. So as a result, figuring that they were safer together, the two built an alliance, with Duffy especially turning to the stockier, more confident Mulcahy who towered over him to be his protector. As they grew up together, Mulcahy began to tower over Duffy both physically and mentally, who, because he never exceeded his height of 5 feet 4 inches, was referred to by Mulcahy as the midget. And as their relationship developed, their roles became clearly defined, with Mulcahy, the taller, more confident and better looking one, very much the leader of the two. He was described variously as loud-mouthed, something of a daredevil and show-off, hyperactive and immature, but he unquestionably dominated the diminutive Duffy, who was grateful for the protection offered from Mulcahy, almost to a level of hero worship of him, and who he admitted later he found exciting to be with. Duffy later described their relationship to a court, I quote, We did everything together. We were in the same classes, we played truant together. If he got up to some mischief, I was always there, and vice versa. Now mischief is a bit of an understatement here, for the pair began to show very disturbing antisocial signs from early on. The following contains disturbing depictions of animal cruelty. By the third year of secondary school in 1972, at age 13, Mulcahy was suspended from Haverstock School for horrifically bludgeoning a hedgehog to death in the playground. He repeatedly hit the animal with a plank of wood, using it as a ball in a macabre game of cricket, and then, as other children watched in horror, maliciously stamped upon its head, putting the poor creature out of its misery. A source at the school recalled, Teachers found David covered in blood. John was next to him, laughing. Parasitic bastards, eh? Now, disgusting actions like this don't endear a person to anyone, and you can imagine that if anything, actions such as these would have only made the pair more of a target for abuse, really, 
because people are rightly horrified at things like that. And if you do stuff like that, then personally, I think you deserve a bloody good hiding. It was about the same time as this that the pair began regularly truanting from Haverstock School, spending their days instead roaming around nearby Hampstead Heath, which became their playground. They explored it inside out whilst truanting from school, so they knew all the escape routes, a court was to hear many years later. And point of note, the infamous picture of the pair at a young age that's up in the show's Instagram page now was most likely taken in a photo booth during one of these days off. The pair had also by this time developed a love of the martial arts, which quickly became an obsession for them, spurred on by the kung fu craze of the early 70s which had been brought on with films such as Fist of Fury or Enter the Dragon, and together the pair would relentlessly practice different moves and holds whilst they were truanting. Duffy also developed a keen interest in the army, reading avidly about kidnapping techniques and holding people hostage, and sharing what he'd learnt with Mulcai, who deemed them both warriors, with Mulcai insisting that they joined the army cadet force. Although the discipline, teamwork and self-pride that any sort of forces training should instill in a person missing these two, it just instead being an attempt to learn skills to combat their miserable existence at school, thus only really furthering the aggression that both felt at the outside world. As the pair got older then, they moved on from their playground games of a variant of Kiss Chase, which involved them touching girls inappropriately, and now began spying on courting couples on Hampstead Heath reportedly often even masturbating together whilst watching couples having sex. Whatever flicks your switch like. But this voyeurism soon moved onto an interest in terrorising them, and they would now jump out on courting couples and individuals on the heath late at night, deriving pleasure out of frightening these people out of their wits, which they did so with the chilling clown-type masks that the pair would wear whilst they jumped out. They also now began committing acts of petty crime, vandalism, the lighting of random fires, just general antisocial activities. One police officer years later described the pair, aside from the rapes and murders they'd committed, summed up as best as a pair of tow rags. Now neither Duffy or Mulcahy was ever going to set the world alight as something like a barrister or a doctor, their academic work being poor to save the least and both were advised to seek work with their hands, which, upon leaving school in 1975 with no qualifications, both of them did. Mulcahy at first helping out in his father's pubs, then finding workers at first as a plumber's mate, then a painter and decorator, before soon afterwards qualifying as a plasterer, whilst Duffy enrolled as an apprentice carpenter with a firm in Camden in North London. It was also around this time, 1975 or possibly 1976, that the pair first began discussing rape between them, for Mulcahy had now suggested that they should rape a woman together. Years later, according to Duffy, they had plotted their first rape because Mulcahy had fallen out with a female owner of a house in Talbot Crescent in Hendon over the quality of some work that he'd done at her home and wanted to break in and sexually assault her, I quote, to teach her a lesson. This is the mindset we've heard so much of. Isn't that absolutely terrible, that, eh? 
to teach her a lesson. Disgraceful. So sure enough, Duffy had agreed, and the pair broke into the woman's house one evening with the intention to do just this. But that evening, the woman was out, and thankfully failed to come home. Undeterred, Mulcahy decided that they should again do the same thing, with him this time targeting a woman who lived in Kennington Park Road in Notting Hill in West London, for no other reason than he decided simply, she looked stuck up. Once again the pair broke in and lay in wait, but their plan failed when the woman returned home unexpectedly with a male friend, causing them to quickly flee. But what the pair did take away from that evening, that they were never to forget, was the excitement doing it had caused them, for it was addictive, like a drug. And bear in mind, this is back in 1975 or 1976. Now it's the latter year that I've just mentioned that Duffy and Mulcahy gained their first criminal conviction each. It had stemmed from an incident on Sunday the 22nd of August of that year, when the pair had been arrested that afternoon for firing a powerful air gun at passers-by from the upstairs bathroom window of the pub that Mulcahy's father ran at the time, the Prince of Tech pub on Kenyon Road in Earl's Court. No less than four people that they'd shot at had been hit, requiring hospitalisation, and it led to them appearing in court almost four months later, charged with, and found guilty, of actual bodily harm. Now this brush with the law, and that's a serious first conviction that like too, isn't it? It didn't deter them whatsoever, and they carried on with their antisocial ways, the minor arson and the vandalism, but now adding car theft and joyriding to their nefarious pursuits. By this time, Duffy was still undertaking his apprenticeship, and although he obtained his City and Guild's craft certificate, he didn't make himself popular with his workmates. He was known as the firm's top skiver due to the amount of time that he had off, and when he was there, his work was reported as being poor in quality, so much so that when he finished his apprenticeship in 1978, as would usually be tradition, he was not offered employment by the firm. Duffy instead spent the next two years working for another London building firm, before in 1980 he joined British Rail, finding a carpentry role at the vehicle and furniture department based at Euston Station. His work with British Rail allowed him free passage on and taught him an extensive knowledge of the railway system in and around the London area. Mulcahy was still plastering, and by this time also, both men were married. Mulcahy had met a 16-year-old Anglo-Indian woman named Sandra Carr in May 1977, whilst the pair were on a night out at the Empire Ballroom in Leicester Square, and in 2001, in her sole press interview, Sandra recalled, David took to me straight away, but I wasn't interested. I left the ballroom, but he came after me and joined me in a taxi home. David and I got on very well. He was a prankster and he made me laugh. Mulcahy had proposed to Sandra after just four months courtship, which she'd accepted, and by February 1978, she was pregnant with the couple's first child, the couple marrying in June of that year at Euston Registry Office. Duffy, meanwhile, had shortly after obtaining work with British Rail, met at an ice rink in Queensway and begun seeing a nursery nurse named Margaret Byrne, which was reportedly his first relationship 
and his first time having a sexual relationship with anyone. Both Duffy and Margaret were virgins when they met, and after a very short courtship, one which the pair apparently kept secret as Margaret's family did not approve of Duffy, they were secretly married at Camden Register Office in June 1980. Now, how news of this was broached to either family isn't reported, nor was who attended or who witnessed this, but it was established that Duffy and his new bride did not begin to live together until three months after the wedding. Their marriage at first was a happy one, that was up until the spring of 1982, when Duffy learned that he was unable to father a child. The couple had tried unsuccessfully to conceive for a while, and to compensate, they'd bought an Alsatian puppy that they named Toby, although Duffy reportedly ill-treated it. The poor animal, who was doted on by Margaret, died only a short time later as a result of falling from the roof of their second-floor flat, although strong suspicions were later expressed that Duffy had actually thrown it off. Finally, after borrowing funds from Duffy's parents to consult a fertility specialist at Harley Street, the couple learned from this that he had a low sperm count and the chances of him fathering a child were about as likely as his mum's were. Now he changed personalities almost overnight as a result of this. Conflicting reports here claim that Duffy was either sacked from British Rail for poor timekeeping and his general attitude after this, or he himself resigned, and at some point early in 1982, he even attempted suicide by using a ligature. He also began to beat Margaret, who he personally blamed for his own inability to father a child, and became convinced that he was ugly and unattractive, which he would tell her often. He would also vent his rage at this time on the replacement family dog, Bruce, and as we've heard in Duffy's episode, mainly devoted his time instead of seeking employment to undertaking a punishing fitness regime, perhaps trying to compensate for what he saw as a serious failing in his masculinity. In August of that year, Margaret left him for the first time in what was to be a merry-go-round of coming and going from the family two-bedroom flat in Barlow Road, though she had returned a month later to try to patch up their marriage. But Duffy showed no signs of wanting to change from the person he'd become, for whilst Margaret worked two jobs to pay the bills, Duffy, as we've heard, wasted the days away watching porn, horror and kung fu films, collecting weapons, obsessing over his martial arts set patterns and being out running for hours at a time. Police theorised later that during Duffy's training sessions, he was geographically planning prime locations for sex attacks, reconnoitring the areas and learning the vital escape routes through London's railways and underground network. And he was, of course, still getting into scrapes with the person he was inseparable from, David Mulcahy. The previous year, the pair had gained yet another criminal conviction, this time appearing at Alton Magistrates Court in Hampshire on charges of the theft of wines and spirits from a storeroom, which they had both received suspended sentences for. Mulcahy himself already had a further conviction under his belt for car theft, but cared very little for it, wearing it almost as a badge of pride, 
it going with this hyperactive, constantly needing to impress and feel liked extrovert persona that earned him the nickname of Crazy Davy due to his willingness to accept dares and danger. He remained married to Sandra and would brag to anyone that she, I quote, knew her place. Reportedly, Sandra Mulcahy rarely went out, always had a meal waiting on the table for him when he got in, and had devoted herself solely to looking after the house and bringing up the couple's children, of which by 1980, there were two. That's the way it should be, said Mulcahy to anyone who would listen. He, meanwhile, could go off and do pretty much what he liked when he liked, and all the time, Mulcahy was still spending time with his pal Duffy. Both men had long since joined martial arts classes, Duffy at first studying lessons in a school of karate known as Weido Ryu, meaning the way of peace, under instructor Tatsu Suzuki, although he never progressed beyond a yellow belt here, and eventually moved schools, with he and Mulcahy joining a school called Wing Chung in Hampstead. They had of course also begun collecting the tools of the trade, rice flails and size, that type of thing, which they bought from a specialist shop called Cobra 2000 in Kentish Town, and of course still maintained a massive collection of knives each. By 1982 the pair were still heavily into all this, though it's not reported as to whether the discipline side of martial arts training helped them progress up through the belts or just fueled their aggression and thuggery as they tried to be the next Bruce Lee. Regardless, they would train obsessively together, being out running, practicing set patterns, yet still displaying the immaturity of their adolescence, for even though the pair were both now married and Mulcahy was a father of two, they would still spend their time firing air rifles at people's windows, lighting the odd fire, joyriding around in stolen cars, still jumping out at people on the heath. Anything that would get the excitement going for them. And we know for definite that in 1982, the pair had found another pastime that would do this for them. For by October of that year, the pair had committed their first known rape, the weekend that Margaret Duffy was away on a training course. They decided between them what to do, even preparing Duffy's flat to contain a victim that they would abduct disorientate and then repeatedly rape as we've heard from the paragraph that I started this whole arc with. It was the first act of a pattern of horror that by less than four years later was to culminate in the murders of three women. Now it emerged in court many years later that this first rape went slightly wrong because when it came to it Neither man wanted the responsibility of being alone with the victim whilst the other fetched the car. So they adapted their plan. They both raped her in a garden and then let her go. Now that victim, who was in court during Mulcahy's trial, might not ever think this. And I hope that you can understand the context of how I mean this next line. I really do. But in a way, she was fortunate. For if she had been abducted and taken to Duffy's flat... I think it's inconceivable that she would have been let go alive. After this attack though, Duffy and Mulcahy developed a taste for rape and spent the next three years doing it at an appalling rate before upping the ante to murder. 
With each attack, they grew more confident, more polished, and enjoyed it that much more each time. They also had by no means completely ceased their other criminal activities. They'd still do their fires and scare people and still nick cars, complete with taking property that they found inside them. It was during one of these thefts that they found and stole a cassette tape that each would become obsessed with, that would become the horrific soundtrack to their marauding, an integral part of their kit that would set the mood for them. Michael Jackson's Thriller they would rewind and play the title track over and over, singing along to it whilst cruising around looking for a victim. Now, think about the opening lines of the song, remember that I began the entire tale with. I'm sure that I don't need to repeat them, and I'm certainly not bloody singing them here. But lines about evil lurking in the dark, or someone trying to scream but being too terrified to. And what other song could better sum up a pair such as this? The opening verse could have been written about them. And for me, it's been one of the most disturbing aspects about the entire tale that has been there constantly throughout research and writing it. That two individuals can be that invested and love doing what they do so much. Something that's so abhorrent that they have a soundtrack to doing it. Horrendous. It's that embodiment of evil that led me, when I first decided that I was covering this tale, to call it the Thriller Arc and it's never a track that I will listen to again in the same way, I tell you. Yet through this also though, the pair maintained, well mostly anyway, this double life, with both mostly appearing to outsiders and neighbours that he was an ordinary, friendly guy. There are tales of Duffy walking home elderly co-workers at the Kilburn Community Centre, where he was on the management committee after having spent some time as a youth worker there, and being so quietly spoken and reserved that anyone would have to initiate conversation to break silence, so unforthcoming was it from him. Mulkai, meanwhile, was more genial, and was seen as a family man that neighbours each claimed he'd do anything for you. A former workmate of Mulkai's who knew both him and Duffy, Stephen Critch, described the difference between the two men as he recalled years later. Mulcahy was a very open, funny kind of guy. If you had a party, then you'd invite him because he was the life and soul. On the other hand, Duffy was very quiet. In fact, Mulcahy also had a completely separate life and selection of acquaintances away from Duffy. It was around the period, full into the onslaught of the pair's horrific campaign, that Mulcahy had become fanatical about roller skating. He would head down to Battersea Park in southwest London every Sunday to partake in this pastime, where he practiced obsessively and made friends with several fellow roller skating enthusiasts. One of these friends Mulcahy made, someone who taught him to skate, is a man named Junior Mayhew, who I shall come on to a bit later in the tale. Eventually, Mulcahy became quite accomplished at skating. He was good enough to take part in the 78-mile London to Southend Marathon to raise money for Guide Dogs for the Blind, which was featured on BBC TV's Blue Peter in March 1986, and which he many years later described to a court. The Blue Peter one took eight hours, and I did it with a presenter. I did 14 hours skating backwards. 
By this time, of course, the pair had already committed several rapes and had murdered for the first time. Roller skating was a pastime that Mulcahy continued doing for several years, and eventually, in 1987, he featured in another BBC programme, Open Space, as part of a group skating 42 hours non-stop on Southend Seafront Promenade to raise funds for various charities, and a clip of which was shown on the recent Channel 5 documentary series The Railway Killers. Now here, a very relaxed-looking Mulcahy can be heard to say, when interviewed, It's madness, but it's just so enjoyable. It's like a drug. You can't give it up. Once you start and you get into it, that's it. You're hooked. Now being a cab driver at the time, when he was asked why he preferred eight wheels to four, Mulcahy replied, Driving a cab's conventional. It's boring. This? Interesting. He then laughs and says, But I'm 28, I'm growing old, but I still can't stop skating. Further clips then show him skating through busy London crowds and spinning around like a right bloody idiot with a massive big grin on his face. Now this clip aired originally in a programme that was broadcast in November 1987, by which time David Mulcahy was already a multiple rapist and a triple murderer. I was quite struck that with the level of enthusiasm he has for this, and his choice of wording, if he didn't mention the word skating, he could almost be discussing his darker pastime. Here he is in his own words, just for that extra embodiment of how unfazed and untroubled he is. It's madness, but it's just so enjoyable. It's a, you can't, it's like a drug, you can't give out. Once you start and you get into it, that's it, you're hooked. But if you've got a cab, which you drive around and then what do you want wheels on your feet for? It's more fun. A cab's conventional, boring. This, interesting. But I'm 28. <laughs> I'm growing old. <laughs> but I still can't stop skating. I think I've watched that clip so many times researching it, it's quite haunting me, to be honest. John Duffy, meanwhile, wasn't someone who featured in this compartment of Mulcahy's life at all. Junior Mayhew, whilst interviewed for a documentary in the late 2000s, described later, John Duffy was never part of that equation. John Duffy was a name, but that was all, because when we used to talk, we were always talking about skating and stuff that we were doing. By this time also, when he wasn't pissing about on eight wheels, Mulcahy had finished working at Westminster Council, where he'd worked from the early 1980s, reportedly being sacked from here due to his attitude towards those he worked for, and had begun working on and off at Crystal Cars, a minicab firm in Dulwich in south-east London where his attitude towards women came to the fore. A controller who worked there, Lola Barry, later said of Mulcahy, His attitude to women was disgusting and dreadful. He liked women to be at the kitchen sink, where they should be, or in bed. If he had anything to say about them, they were either slags or sluts. He'd refer to, that slag who makes my tea. If he got angry, it would be, that fucking slag or slut. He had a very quick and nasty temper. 
Lola added that there was a woman driver at the firm called Carla, who was, as she described, an 18-stone feminist. Lola continued, She wouldn't tolerate his behaviour, and when he once called her a slag, she picked him up and threw him out of the office. Once, he came behind me in the office and got me round the neck, saying, How does it feel? Are you scared? I said, Just let me go and get out of my office. He went out laughing. It was only a joke as far as he was concerned, but I was frightened. Except that Mulcahy had probably said that to countless women who it certainly wasn't meant as a joke towards, three of whom had lost their lives alongside threats of severe mutilation and anger, masked alongside disgusting mock tenderness and enforced intimacy with his victims. Several of the rape victims remembered Mulcai stroking their hair tenderly or kissing their neck whilst he was raping them or asking them, are you a virgin, as he removed their clothing. Others remember him blaming them when he could not maintain his erection in attacks of increasing sadism. So. Running his knife across his victim's lips, he would whisper threats to them, threatening to gouge their eyes out or slice off their nipples, that kind of thing, and reveling in their pure terror, curing his impotence that way. Foul, isn't it that? Absolutely foul. Now, we know that Mulcahy had been arrested two days after John Duffy had in November 1986 on suspicion of being his accomplice and this was far from being the first arrest for either man. We've heard of Duffy's countless arrests earlier in the tale, but arguably there was a golden opportunity missed to collar the pair perhaps even sooner, and this is aside from the DNA and fingerprint evidence that had gone towards placing Mulcahy in the dock, although that would depend on scientific advancement. It transpired that shortly after the rape of the two Danish au pairs on Spaniards Road in 1984, Duffy and Mulcahy had both been arrested in possession of stolen building materials, which had been found in Mulcahy's work van. Now also found during this search was a black balaclava, but the quick-thinking and cocky Mulcahy had told the arresting officers that he used this in the course of his plastering when he was working on dusty ceilings which was accepted as an excuse, and the pair escaped with mere fines. And in theory, it could be a valid reason, although I've never seen a plasterer looking like he was just about to bloody rob a bank. If there are any listening in, and wearing a balaclava is something that's done to avoid dust, then I'd be grateful if you could get in touch and let me know. But regardless, the fact that one of the two arrested here was short, and the other a lot taller, and in possession of a black balaclava, smack bang in the epicentre of these attacks was not seen, the pieces regrettably not being put together at the time, although to be fair, it's easy to say that with the benefit of hindsight. But this cockiness, this front like Brighton, was a trait instilled in Mulcahy, and it was certainly one he carried through the six days that he spent being interrogated when he was arrested in November 1986, on suspicion of being the taller man. Unfazed by the questioning, he played down his relationship with Duffy, admitting that they had been close friends whilst at school, but the relationship had by that time petered out to them being mere acquaintances. 
He gave various alibis concerning his whereabouts on the dates and times of the murders, that he was sick or working or with his family, and although he was to admit on occasion being with Duffy, he denied that any crimes had occurred whilst they were together. When pushed on anything, he was quick and keen to deny that he was a rapist, claiming, as a quote from one of the interviews, It's not my style, I'm afraid. I'm married. He then furthered, No, it's not me. I don't need to rape women. I've got a nice wife at home. I get all the sex I can handle. Plus, sex and violence to me don't mix. Nobody needs to rape women at all, dickhead. Now before Duffy and Mulcahy had even left school, such close friends had they become that they had early on sworn a pledge that they would never grass on each other. And it's fine to say this, but was it a pledge that would be actually kept if it came to it? Stephen Critch recalled that after Duffy was arrested in 1986, following his release, Mulcahy became nervous and edgy. Mr. Critch said, He was extremely worried. To say he wasn't amused is an understatement. He said he'd kill Duffy if he got hold of him, and claimed he had nothing to do with the crimes. As we've heard by his skating exploits though, by six months after Duffy had been charged and was on remand awaiting trial, Mulcahy had soon seemingly gotten over his fears and was confident that the childhood pact he and Duffy had made to never grass would remain strong, intact and valid. That was it. It was unfortunate, but one of them had fallen to be gone forever. So the way he saw it, you respect the promise that you've made and let the other one move on. And indeed, theirs was a promise that would be kept to the letter while the other remained free for a while anyway. So this was it. Following his release from custody in November 1986, Mulcahy had completely cut his best friend Duffy loose. That was it. Regardless of the arrogance of the man, undoubtedly shaken by just how close he'd come to joining his partner in crime. Following Duffy's conviction in 1988, Mulcahy had regained his front enough to have given the very telling statement to a newspaper that I told in the previous episode where he'd said, in part, If police thought I did these things, then they should have charged me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm innocent. Before even having the arrogance to bleat onto the paper about how the previous 16 months had been a nightmare for him and his family, how he was wanting to clear his name, and how he was even considering suing the police, I quote, for wrongful arrest and for destroying my reputation. Mulcahy never was to do this, however, most likely in private, still thanking his lucky stars and thinking just what a close shave he had had, and that was one boat that he wouldn't rock. For most likely the same reason, he never brought any action against the newspaper either, who very tellingly in the paragraph immediately underneath these remarks, underneath a picture of Mulcahy and his wife, had pointed out that, I quote, Police say they know who the accomplice is, but have failed to gather enough evidence to charge him and bring him to justice. It's pretty much the best that you can do without printing an arrow pointing upwards, isn't it? 
In the intervening years then, Mulcahy had spent time, as we've heard, working as a minicab driver, a chauffeur and as a motorcycle courier. At one point also had had his own decorating business, although this soon folded when he was made bankrupt, and he instead became a jobbing builder and decorator, working all over the capital wherever he could find it. He also lost both of his parents in 1989 and indulged in an affair, though one he claimed stopped short of intercourse, with a teenage girl who was at the time lodging with the family. However, Sandra forgave him for this and the marriage remained, with Sandra reportedly saying, She threw herself at him, but David told me it was only canoodling between them. Believe what you will there, I certainly do. Now Mulcahy was to appear in court himself once again in the intervening years also. This time in 1989 on charges of assaulting his nine-year-old son Christopher, whom he'd battered senseless with the plastic frame of a Wendy house as punishment for the child wet in his bed. The crocodile tears that he produced in court were enough to ensure that he was given a suspended sentence for this, although it resulted in Christopher being made a ward of court and placed into foster care for two years. Whilst the other Mulcahy children, for as the years had passed, Mulcahy was to become a father to six sons with Sandra, although Christopher was to die of leukemia in 1997, aged 17, and another son, John, had been stillborn back in 1987, it led to them being placed on the at-risk register. And by all accounts, following Duffy's arrest, and aside from him battering his son, Mulcahy never was to offend again, seeing his former best friend sent down for life, seemingly having disturbed him enough, giving him enough of a close shave, that he reverted to the life of a family man. Now it's something I shall discuss when I come to give my own thoughts and feedback about the Ark in full. Yet, though not offending, reportedly anyway, the sadistic streak still remained in Mulcahy. It hadn't gone anywhere. Following his arrest in February 1999, one of the items that was discovered during the search of Mulcahy's home was a series of photographs showing a 12-year-old boy floundering in a bathtub filled with ice cubes, who was identified later as being a cousin of Mulcahy's. It was later to transpire at his trial that he had bound the youngster hand and foot and had thrown him into a bath filled with ice cubes because the boy struggled to get out of bed of a morning. Mulcahy bellowing with laughter as he watched him floundering in the melting ice, amused enough even to take photographs of the event. Now it's a sadistic thing to do, and undoubtedly something his cousin was uncomfortable with, to say the very least. I mean, who would be with something like that? But this discomfort wouldn't have registered with someone such as David Mulcahy, because we're talking about someone who had little to no feeling for any other. Someone who could batter a defenceless animal to death and laugh about it, who could rape and terrorise countless women, who could kill at least two of them, after having put all three that he was later charged with killing through a living nightmare, and the kind of fear that you just can't quantify, even imagine, and enjoy it because it was godlike to him who could without hesitation turn on and cut his best friend of many years completely off, and one who was cocky and arrogant enough to brazen his way through interviews, sure that he would never face justice for his crimes. By all accounts, 
this was David Mulcahy, but he seemingly just stepped away from rape and murder and consigned it merely to another forgotten pastime like his martial arts or roller skating. Confident enough in the pact made many years before, and arrogant enough to think that his former partner in crime, his former best friend John Duffy, would still honour this, even though he'd cut him dead. No visits, no telephone calls, not even a letter, little realising that this was a pact living on borrowed time. And now, some 14 years after they'd last seen each other, the two former best friends both stood in a court, the most famous court in the land, court number one of the Old Bailey, one in the dock, watching and listening to the other give telling, stripped bare testimony that detailed all of their exploits. To quote counsel, the most chilling evidence you could hear, but also the most compelling, as we've heard. On Monday, January the 8th, 2001, the case for the defence commenced with a grey-suited, neat-looking David Mulcahy heading into the witness box to give evidence on his own behalf, where, of course, in a performance that was described by a senior police officer as, I quote, smug and arrogant to the extreme, he denied everything that was put to him, claiming that John Duffy was nothing more than a liar. He did admit that at one point, when they were at school, he emphasised, he and Duffy had been good friends, but that their relationship had waned some when in 1977, Mulcahy had met his wife, Sandra, who was sat in the public gallery alongside her eldest two sons. And when the pair were involved in what he described as a pub fracas, though nothing further concerning what this consists of or when it happened is reported. And he initially came across as a credible witness but then Mulcahy began to show his true colours under cross-examination. His explanations for some of the things put to him were almost to the point of absurdity, such as the taller man he was accused of being simply must have been another friend of Duffy's who was a doppelganger for him, police had fabricated the DNA evidence by obtaining a sample of his semen, how you do that like, answers on a postcard, and planting it on the clothing of the Danish au pair, the fingerprint evidence on the sticky tape was just not his, and so on, guff like that. When it came to the rapes he was accused of, in each case he would offer that he was either working or at home with his wife and family, the same alibis he would offer when challenged as to his whereabouts for each of the three murders. And each was shot down or left without anything to corroborate them bar the word of Mulcahy himself. For example, for the night of Alison Day's murder, Mulcahy claimed he was ill in bed with bronchial pneumonia, but a statement produced to the court that had been taken from his then GP in 1986 after his arrest that November showed that by the 23rd of December, when the doctor had visited him, Mulcahy had made a full recovery. The afternoon of Marcia Tambosa's murder was one that he claimed to have been working on but a statement was produced from the homeowner that he was undertaking work for at the time, who clearly recalled Mulcahy having left early that day, leaving plenty of time for him to get to East Horsley. And for the evening of the murder of Anne Locke, Mulcahy claimed he would simply have been with his wife and children, as Sundays were their family day. 
Yet this couldn't be corroborated, because who can remember a regular, uneventful family day out from some 14 years previously? His wife and children certainly couldn't, so there were no statements supporting this alibi. Denial after denial was countered by Mr. Dennis, who at every point he was able to, challenged Mulcahy as the liar in the court, not Duffy. Barely able to contain his anger, on more than one occasion, Mulcahy challenged back, Will you stop calling me a liar? The defence had also made an application to have Mulcahy's interview tapes from the 1980s excluded from evidence in the trial, arguing that they would prove prejudicial, but Mr Justice Hyam overruled this and allowed them. Scoring further points here, Mr Dennis also arranged for the tape-recorded interviews of these to be played, alongside the transcripts being read out, so the jury could hear the character of Mulcahy back then. Now two things were to emerge from these that would highlight the kind of character that Mr Dennis had attempted to paint to the jury, one of them being such a telling and devastating point to the defence that Mulcahy would not be able to explain, try and bluff his way out however much he could. Firstly, during one of the interviews from 1986, Mulcahy had clearly stated that he would never wear anything over a hooded top that he had, as had been described by one of the rape victims in her statement. Yet photographs of him from the mid-1980s, including one widely publicised one that's also up on the show's Instagram page now, and that proper makes me want to Roy Keane tackle him each time I see it, it really does, show a smirking Mulcahy in a hooded top, with a top over this. But the second point that came from it was what writer Simon Farquhar describes as the prosecution's ace up the sleeve, and was also to be the final exchange of Mulcahy's cross-examination by Mr Dennis. On the morning of the 21st of July 1986, following Duffy being questioned by Operation Trinity officers, one David Mulcahy had been interviewed on tape by police officers also, based on the previous association between the two and the petty crimes they'd been convicted of together, and the tape of this interview was played to the court. Now at the time, Mulcahy had been arrested only on suspicion of rape. Remember, at this time there was the belief that only one of Taller and Shorter had branched out into raping alone and then murdering. On the tape, the interviewing officer asks Mulcahy if he knew why he was in the police station, and Mulcahy said he was there on suspicion of rape and to be questioned about the murders of Alison Day, Martia Tamboza, and Anne Locke. Now, Anne Locke's body was not found until later that same day, so although suspected she was, he couldn't be questioned about a murder that no one knew at the time for certain had happened. It was very definitely only two that he was asked about. When the tape was switched off, Mr. Dennis told the court that this had been a fatal slip on the part of Mulcahy because he had, without prompting, denied three killings, not two, and then asked David Mulcahy how he knew then that Anne Locke had been murdered when her body hadn't been found until that very same day late in the afternoon. It was a point Mulcahy could not answer, and one that Mr. Dennis went on and suggested that the reason he'd mentioned Anne Locke was simply 
because he was involved in her death. For his closing address to the jury, Mr. Dennis told the court, Duffy was the serial rapist. It was his partner who had that aggressive streak and the one who had the desire to dominate and exercise power and control over life and death. Mulcahy was getting more out of this. He wanted something more than just rape. Mulcahy was an arrogant and cruel character, playing with his victims as if the whole thing was a game, getting satisfaction and enjoyment from bullying and picking on the vulnerable. He was the one for whom the sexual abuse had become insufficient to satisfy, and the instigator and prime mover in the murders. Mr Carter Stevenson, meanwhile, when it came to his turn, basically complained that the defence had been disadvantaged by the length of time it had taken to bring his client to trial, saying, It is often said that justice delayed is justice denied. The longer it takes for a matter to be dealt with, the more evidence is lost. In this case, exhibits have been destroyed which would have been of forensic or scientific significance. He then claimed that despite what the rape victims had subsequently said in court during their testimonies, none of them had picked Mulcahy out of identification parades back in the 1980s, and there was nothing that had been presented to the court to suggest that two men were involved in the murders, apart from the word of John Duffy, whom he told the court was, I quote, a manipulator and a liar, before reiterating the simplicity of the defence case that Mulcahy hadn't committed the crimes. Poundland quality closing line, that surely. It was an address that didn't really endear him to the jury, who throughout the lengthy trial had bristled, shall we say, at the aggressive, dismissive and somewhat inappropriate style of the defence counsel during his cross-examination of the rape victims. Indeed, it was to prompt both the CPS and the police to consider complaining to the Bar Council and the Law Society about it. On Monday the 29th of January 2001, the jury of six men and six women retired to consider their verdicts and returned to court number one some four days later on Friday the 2nd of February after having deliberated for some 19 hours and 42 minutes over the four days to deliver their verdict, which they had reached a unanimous one of for all 15 counts of the charges that Mulcahy faced. In court to witness the decision were members of the Operation Marford team, who had worked on the £2 million inquiry for the previous three years, as well as at least three of the victims of the assaults, desperately hoping their long, still-living nightmare could finally now go some way to being put to rest for good. David Mulcahy was found unanimously guilty of seven counts of rape and five counts of conspiracy to rape, from dates ranging from October 1982 to March 1985, as well as the final three counts he was charged with. The murder of Alison Day on the 29th of December 1985, the murder of Marcia Tamboza on the 17th of April 1986, and the murder of Anne Locke on the 18th of May 1986. Every count that he'd been charged with. Got you, you twat. When the verdict was announced, there were cries of, Yes! 
from the public gallery, and three of Mulcahy's victims, who before the trial had never met one another, and Paul Tidyman, the former fiancé of Alison Day, broke down weeping, hugging each other as they did so. Just a few feet away from them, Mulcahy's wife Sandra shook her head in disbelief or disgust, and his eldest sons each reached for their mother to comfort her. Mulcahy himself, meanwhile, showed no emotion. He'd remained impassive as the jury returned its verdicts. Cocky and defiant to the end. Mulcahy stared straight ahead as Mr Justice Hyam told him, passing sentence. The offences of rape for which you have been convicted together make this an exceptionally serious set of offences. They contain almost all the aggravating features which may be found in this type of offending. Firstly, violence was offered, which was used over and above that necessary to commit the offence. Secondly, in every case a weapon, namely a knife, was used to terrify and subdue the victim into compliance. Thirdly, the offences were repeated, and on occasion more than one rape was committed at the time of the offences. Rape was committed again and again. Furthermore, there were other sexual indignities inflicted on the victims, in addition to the rapes. Sections of the impact statements given by the victims were then read out to the court by the judge, such as how one was still so traumatised that she couldn't even attend court, another who spoke of nightmares and constant anxiety, having time off work, constant medication and needing therapy for years, all stemming from the attack, and one who simply, still to that day, just could not comprehend how one human being could inflict such fear and terror on another. Before he continued, now focusing upon the role Mulcahy solely played in the crimes, saying, These were sadistic killings. Of the two of you, I have no doubt that it was you that derived gratification from killing. These were acts of desolating wickedness in which you descended to the depths of depravity in carrying them out. The punishment for such terrible crimes is mandatory. A sentence of life imprisonment is intended to, and will, reflect society's abhorrence of these crimes. For each of the rapes that he'd been convicted of, David John Mulcahy received sentences of 24 years, whilst the conspiracy to rape charges brought sentences of 18 years each, all to run concurrently. So he was looking at 258 years there to begin with, but just to make sure, he was of course given three mandatory life sentences for the murders of Alison, Martia and Anne. Now he showed no emotion or reportedly said nothing following the sentence being passed, but he did show something that sums up his character and reminds you, if you need it like, of the monster that he is. As he was being led away to begin his sentence, Mulcahy looked up towards the public gallery, met the gaze of the three victims whose lives his actions had blighted for so many years, who were there in court to witness his sentencing, and smirked at them. Unbelievable, eh? He then disappeared down the steps to be taken away to a segregation unit at Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, which he was to be placed in for his own protection 
following him being attacked whilst on remand and scalded with bleach and boiling water. Doesn't the heart bleed, eh? See how much you'd smirk then with the cold light of forever hanging over you. Following the verdict, outside the Old Bailey, Detective Superintendent Andy Murphy, who had spearheaded Operation Marford, told the press, In 1986, with the arrest of John Duffy, police brought about the end of a series of one of the most horrific rapes and murders this country has ever seen. Today's verdicts will ensure that David Mulcahy will never have the opportunity to terrorise the streets of London again. Our thoughts are with the victims of these crimes and those who have had the courage to give evidence in this trial. Detective Superintendent Murphy was also keen to stress that Duffy did not testify against his former best friend in order to get any sort of deal, saying, Revenge did not play a part in Duffy giving evidence. After years in prison, he simply couldn't live with what he'd done, and part of coming to terms with that was describing Mulcahy's part. Duffy had been in jail for 12 years and had had plenty of time to think things over. He was told long ago that he's considered too dangerous to ever be released. He knew he couldn't get a deal. There was nothing we could offer him. He decided it was time to do the right thing and put the record straight. For years, he denied to himself and his family what he'd done. It is all down to the psychiatrist, Dr. Jenny Cutler, who finally persuaded him to open up. We spent weeks debriefing him. He'd never spoken about his crimes before. We took him back to all the murder scenes, and they were very moving moments. Some of the places had changed since the murders, but he described them exactly how they'd been, and when we checked against original maps and plans, we could see every word was true. Of Mulcahy, he also added later, He is a monster. He has no feelings. Throughout, Mulcahy has appeared arrogant, confident, and cocky. I think he really thought he'd got away with it. He mixed lies and truth at interviews, but he threw up when we told him he was being questioned about the rape of two Danish girls, and then broke down when we told him we had new DNA evidence. You have to accept that some people are just evil. Mulcahy is such a person, and he should stay in jail. No arguments whatsoever there, Andy. None at all. On Friday the 9th of March 2001, John Francis Duffy, meanwhile, we've not forgotten about Shorter, appeared once again at the Old Bailey before Mr Justice Hyam for sentencing on each of the 17 further counts of rape that he had admitted to during his series of interviews with police. His defence counsel, Christopher Campbell Klein QC, told the court that any sentence would be merely token considering Duffy's whole life tariff, and that further, Duffy had never appealed against his life terms and had never asked for leniency, saying he considered his sentences just. He went on, Having committed these crimes, there is nothing more in his power that he could have done to make amends. He also praised psychologist Dr Cutler, saying that, I quote, Without her intervention, he would never have made these confessions. Judge Hyam said he'd taken into account Duffy's testimony against Mulcahy in his sentencing, but that it was not for him to say if Duffy should ever be released. 
I see it as my task to sentence him on the offences for which he appears before this court, he said. Then sentencing Duffy to 12 years further imprisonment on each count of rape, he told him, You chose to give evidence against Mulcahy. Your evidence, without doubt, formed the basis of the prosecution's case against him. Without your efforts, it may be doubtful whether the prosecution could have succeeded. And you've got to think, it's possible, isn't it? At least for the murders, anyway. So, we now have both taller and shorter, David Mulcahy and John Duffy, behind bars for life, unquestionably where each of them deserves to be as well. It's been an amazing story to get to this point, it truly is. It's definitely the most remarkable tale that I've done for the show to date. And in the final episode, and I do promise it's the final, coming next time around, we shall look at the aftermath of the guilty verdict of Mulcahy and his imprisonment meaning that two of the most dangerous and sadistic sexual predators to ever stalk Britain's streets finally couldn't ever again. We shall catch back up with some names we've met throughout the arc to date and what this verdict meant for them and I shall wrap it up nicely by giving my own opinions concerning the crimes of Duffy and Mulcahy, and I've not given the enthusiasts final thought for eight episodes, so I may wrap it on a little bit. You can catch that one coming very soon then, which I shall go and put the finishing touches to right now, because of course, I've already started writing it. If you wish to discuss the thriller arc to date, then there are plenty of threads up in the show's Facebook discussion group to do so, or you can get me as ever through any of the show's social media links and I'm always happy to chat with you. I thank you ever as much for joining me here today for the episode and all that remains is for me to say that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and goodbye for now.